<clears throat> on the Barnes & Noble website, they have a feature I haven't seen on any other websites. Barnes & Noble is a bookseller and they sell lots of mystery books and suspense books. And if you go to read the reviews on their website, at the top of every review there's a spoiler alert right at the top with a yes or a no to indicate to you if you're going to read this book or interested in this book and you're looking at the reviews there's a spoiler alert notice yes or no whether or not the review reveals who did the crime or who how or they did or didn't live happily ever after maybe they don't want you to be spoiled about the ending of the book before you buy the book, of course. And I'm going to use that spoiler alert warning for our passage today because some of us know these characters well and these stories in the Gospel of John. We've read the Gospel of John. We've probably heard great sermons of these passages in the Gospel of John. And as you read it, it's easy to automatically kind of jump ahead to what we know happens a little later. So if we can, for at least a few minutes this morning, let's pretend and let's forget what we know happens to Jesus this next day after this night that this takes place in. Let's pretend we simply know Jesus, Judas as the treasurer that holds the money. Let's just pretend we don't know anything else about him, that he's just the treasurer. Let's simply see Peter as that passionate and committed disciple without thinking about what he does the next day. And as we're jumping back in here to the Gospel of John after it's been a few weeks, you might remember this is the last night of Jesus's life. He's just seen his final sunset. The next day he is going to be crucified. I told you to forget about that, but wait, wait to forget until I start us where we're back at, if that makes sense. And we've seen in this Gospel of John, as we've been going through it, the first 11 chapters cover three years of Jesus' life. But starting with chapter 12 through 21, it covers only about a week. And then starting with chapter 13 through 19, those seven chapters cover less than one day. And that's the period that we're in right now, the night before Jesus is about to die. His public sermons and his public ministry is kind of ended, and he's just spending time with these 12 disciples, having these intimate conversations with them back and forth. And in this conversation we see that Jesus has with his disciples, he communicates with them and pretty much shows them through a couple different examples how there's supposed to be grace given to all people how they're supposed to love God's people and also be committed to God's plan. And that first thing he's describing for them is he's giving them an example of showing grace to all people using Judas as that example, starting in verse 21. In verse 21 there, when it says, when Jesus had said this, this refers to Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, that image of substitution, where he takes the dirt from their feet and he puts it on the towel he is wearing. Similar to how he's going to take their sins and put it on himself when he goes to the cross. It also described in there the doctrine of illumination, how 
Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but in the future, you will. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll understand. He tells them the purpose of washing the feet, the practice that they should do, as well as the result. And John tells us here that Jesus, in verse 21, when Jesus said this, referring to what he described for them and washing their feet, he became troubled in spirit. Another way to translate that would mean Jesus became agitated. That same word described Jesus when he heard that Lazarus had died. He became troubled in his spirit. Gentle reminders that Jesus, he was human like us. He felt like us. He got frustrated like us. He was fully God, but also fully man. And here in verse 21, we get this prediction of Jesus says, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now remember our spoiler alert. No one knows who's going to be the one to betray Jesus. There have been a couple of hints, even in this chapter, that someone would betray Jesus, but nobody knows who it is specifically. And that leads, after that prediction, to a question the disciples want to ask Jesus. In verse 22, it says, The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he had been speaking. So they're kind of turning their heads, maybe whispering to each other, Who's he talking about? Who's this one that's going to betray him? See, Judas had covered his tracks so well, nobody suspected him. Then we see John, the disciple, here in verse 23, and then I'm going to jump down and read verse 25. In verse 23, it says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Then down to verse 25. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved was John's own way of describing himself, John, son of Zebedee, one of the twelve disciples. And that word bosom isn't really one that we use often in our culture, but bosom describes basically someone's chest. Sorry, that's the first rule of preaching, never touch your microphone. But it describes the chest, that's what the bosom is. And as beautiful as Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper painting is, where all twelve of the disciples are there in front of us, as beautiful as that painting is, it doesn't always quite describe what this Passover meal would look like. See, at a Passover meal, they wouldn't be sitting in chairs at a table. They'd be kind of reclining on couches on their side. Normally, they'd recline on their left arm. Their head would be near the table, and their right arm they would use to eat. And then their feet would kind of be pointing out away from the table. And in this way, Jesus is at that head table, probably in the middle, and John must be sitting to Jesus' right. So when it says John leaned back, so John's just kind of here, and he just kind of leans back on Jesus' chest, and he gets to ask him this question in this intimate way, in a way that maybe others couldn't really hear John either ask or probably didn't hear Jesus' response directly. And in between verse 23 and 25 that I read is that passionate disciple, Peter. 
Simon Peter gestured to him, so he gestures to John, and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. So Peter's in the room somewhere, but he must be a little farther away from Jesus. And this word here for gestured can, comes from an old verb that means to nod. So it's kind of like Peter gives his friend John the little nod, like, ask Jesus. And so John leans back and asks him. Now, Peter, he was a passionate guy. He was a leader, but he was also emotional. And these 12 disciples, they weren't scholarly Jewish rabbis. They were rough fishermen and physical laborers. So they were ready to take care of this betrayer, I wonder. They might have thought about, we're going to find out who it is, and we're going to take him out. Which we know Peter was quick to do that, because in another gospel it says when they showed up to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out one of his two swords he had, and he cut off a guy's ear. So... This gentle nod is almost like, let's find a way, John, maybe. I remember as a young pastor talking with one guy, and he said, Pastor, I want you to know I always have a shovel in my trunk, so if anyone from church has given you a hard time, let me know. That's something he told me. And it took me a day to realize what he was telling me. I'm like, what's he going to do with a shovel? And then about a day later, I realized, oh... I was at another church and a different guy, but it's it just kind of that same attitude. I love you, and we're going to watch out for you. But this is where we see Jesus' grace. Jesus is protecting Judas. He's almost accepting Judas as he is there with his response. There's been this prediction about the betrayer. There's been a question from John and Peter. And then Jesus gives them a little direction. He says in verses 26 and 27, Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now dipping the morsel of bread into the common dish was a sign of intimacy and friendship that the host would usually offer to someone at the meal. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible says on this verse, At Eastern meals it was customary for the host to offer one of his guests a morsel of bread as a gesture of special friendship. By this, Jesus was showing his love for Judas, the betrayer. Then in verse 27, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do do it quickly. Satan's now using Judas to accomplish Satan's will. See, Jesus always knew what was going to happen. Jesus was never surprised. The disciples were surprised, but Jesus wasn't. And then this state of confusion comes in verse 27, 28 through 30. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. These three verses show us that the disciples still didn't 
suspect Judas. In their eyes, Judas was a guy of good character, which makes sense of why they would have given him the money box to carry. And when Judas leaves, they think he's either going to get ready for the feast, sign of good character, someone that's responsible and wants to be prepared, or he's going to give something to the poor. They thought Judas was maybe being charitable. He was probably responsible, upright, and trustworthy. In Jesus' example here, as he describes this in front of the disciples, serves as an example for us that we too should be people of grace. Jesus knows Judas is about to betray him and lead him to the cross, but Jesus still is there with Judas. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, but he loved Judas anyway. Jesus knew Judas' actions would lead him to his death, but he still let Judas act. Jesus knew Judas was probably not a believer, but he still offered grace in that free offer of salvation to Judas. Up until Judas killed himself, ultimately committed suicide, Jesus' offer of salvation was always available to Judas. He could always repent. He could always ask for forgiveness and would have received it. And that's a reminder for us, too, that when someone says something that's hurtful to us, we need to forgive them. When they do something that causes us harm and wounds us, we have to learn to let it go. When people in our culture don't act like Christians, we have to sometimes remember not everybody has you know, a book that tells them how to act and how to live a responsible, moral life. We need to show grace just as Jesus showed grace to Judas. And just as Jesus uses the example towards Judas to show grace to all people, he tells them next about how they need to love God's people. He kind of takes the focus away from Judas now as that outsider and directs it to the insiders, those 11 disciples. Starting in verse 31, Jesus, it says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Starting in verse 31, this is the last of seven kind of long teachings or long discourses that John puts in his gospel. In the gospel of John, there are seven sign miracles that he puts in there. There are seven I am statements. We've seen five of those already. And this is the seventh of these long kind of discourses or teachings that Jesus has that starts here in verse 31 and continues throughout chapter 14. See, evil has left the room. Judas has gone. Now he's just with those 11 committed disciples. And he starts out, he gives them a word of comforting encouragement to them. In verse 33, he talks to them saying, little children. He addresses them as little children. 
The common word for children is technia in Greek, but here John uses a different word, technia. With a, I'm sorry, the common word for children is techna in Greek, but this one he uses here is technia, which means little children. It describes a smaller child. It's kind of like an affectionate address to a, a smaller child to comfort them and express concern for them. It's only used one time in this gospel, but it gets used a lot by John in his first letter he writes. See, Jesus knows his teaching is difficult and hard, and he wants to make sure his hearers are sure that he has concern for them. So he gives them a little bit more encouragement. He continues on describing this new commandment for them in verse 34 that we read in our devotion before offering as well as in our worship song this new commandment now it wasn't necessarily a new commandment because the old testament taught them to love one another as themselves but this is going to be a new commandment as it's a fresh experience a new experience they're going to have and it describes what we are supposed to do in verse 34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another even as i have loved you that you also love one another. And it's in that present tense there, that you love one another. We start loving and we keep on loving each other. And he gives us the degree to what we're supposed to love each other there in the middle. Even as I have loved you, Jesus says. Even as I have loved you. See, that's the new commandment. They don't just love others as they love themselves. They're supposed to love each other as much as Jesus loved them by sacrificing himself for them. It's not a new command, but to love as sacrificially as Christ loved was the new command. And he's talking to these 11 disciples, the believers. It's important we're supposed to love the world and do outreach, but at least here he's talking to them one another to one another. They're supposed to love one another. So verse 34 describes what we're supposed to do, and verse 35 tells us what happens when we do it. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, by this or in this way, people will recognize you because of your love. The message puts it this way. The measure of our love for one another is set... I read the wrong line. The message puts it this way. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. By your love for each other. There was a pastor that did a, a funeral for a, a lady uh, years ago. And, and her and her husband were real good, committed people to church and active a lot. And they always had this neighbor that was an unbeliever, even though they tried to share the gospel with the neighbor. And the husband died unexpectedly once and so the day of the funeral, the pastor went over to the widow's home to check on her before the funeral, and the unbelieving neighbor was sitting there on the couch with, with her, just talking, and there's someone coming to deliver meals, and someone else was getting stuff ready for the funeral, and there's a guy mowing her lawn, getting things ready. And the neighbor sat with the lady all day, watching these people come and go. And at the end of the day, the neighbor said to the, the woman, the widow, she said, how big is your family? 
well, they weren't her family, it was the church showing love. That's how people recognize us, by our love for each other. And we need to remember what love is in this context. Jesus has just washed the feet of all of the disciples. He's just extended grace to that betrayer, Judas. What stronger sign of love than to endure the stench of someone else's feet and the sting of someone's betrayal? See, Jesus' example for us is to be people of love. And it's not something new for us. We know we need to be people of love, but we do maybe need a fresh experience or a fresh reminder, especially after COVID, because there was a lot of ways we showed love to our Christian brothers and sisters that we weren't able to during the COVID pandemic, like bringing someone a meal when they were sick, taking someone to coffee or tea when they're going through a tough time, Visiting someone in the hospital or a nursing home. Those are all things that we weren't able to do for a period of time, but we can still do now. And love varies with the seasons of life. If we have kids, if our kids are grown and gone, if we have good health or our health is, is failing, those are all circumstances that affect how we love. Not everybody can show love in the same way, but we should show that love to one another. So just as Jesus has given this example of grace to all people and told them they need to love God's people, lastly, we see through Peter a commitment to God's plan. In verses 36 through 38, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Talking about commitment reminds me of a joke. What do you call a fruit that's afraid of commitment? A cantaloupe. Okay, that's your, your commitment joke. Luke told me that one, yes. I can't elope. See, you guys actually laughed at one of my jokes for once. Wow. So we're supposed to be committed to God and his plan. And we see this guy here, passionate Peter. I know we like to make fun jokes about Peter, but man, Peter was passionate about God. He was committed to Jesus. Jesus's, Peter's love for Jesus is what cause Peter want to be with Jesus. And if we can keep that spoiler alert on, just from us reading about Peter and talking about Peter, we think, man, Peter would have stuck with Jesus no matter what, right? But as we know, he did deny Jesus three times and fulfilled that prophecy. Peter was passionate, but Peter was also persistent. If you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes back to heaven, ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. And after that, someone steps forward and preaches the first sermon. And that was our guy, Peter. When everybody was confused and didn't know what to make of this fire that came down, Peter steps forward and people got saved. And he became the leader of the church in the first century. And when John writes this, obviously, many years later, 
In 90 AD, Peter had been killed at this time that John writes this. Peter might have denied Jesus three times in AD 30 when Jesus died. But in AD 65, Peter was killed by Emperor Nero because of his faith. He did die for Jesus just a little later than maybe he thought. See, Peter's example for us is that we should be people of commitment. We need to be passionate like Peter, but we also need to be persistent and committed. You can almost imagine the elderly John writing this gospel down. He's the last living disciple of the twelve, still alive in A.D. 90. His skin is wrinkled, his legs are weak, his vision is getting blurry, but as he describes Peter, what a reminder for John as he writes this, I got to stay passionate for Jesus, and I got to stay persistent for Jesus. That should be encouragement for us too. With work frustrations and infertility, family struggles and health issues, we need to be people of commitment to God. So as we wrap up our time together, as you think about your life now, I hope we all can be people of, of grace and love and commitment. And if someone was to read a review of your life, looking forward from today going forward, would they find a spoiler alert? Would there be a big gap of when you weren't graceful? A big gap of when you didn't love others? A big gap of when you weren't committed to God's plan? A couple of little mistakes or bumps along the way, of course, like anybody. But I hope there wouldn't be a spoiler alert for your life. Because there's supposed to be people that show grace to all people, to love God's people, and to be committed to God's plan. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the encouragement that it gives us. As we go through life, please be with us and give us strength to show grace to God's, to show grace to all people that we interact with, that cause hurt or do wrong things that affect us. Give us that strength to show grace, to overlook their wickedness, to overlook their wrongdoings, and to show grace to them. And as a body of local believers, pray that you would give us strength to show love to each other, that we would care for each other, and that they would see how we interact and how we care for each other and think, man, they, they do something different. Please help us to be like that. And with that, I pray that you will help us be committed to you, Lord, among the different priorities and, and things that interrupt our lives. Help us be committed to you and your plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at this time, I'll invite you to stand for the, the benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> May the great God of heaven and Jesus Christ our Lord overwhelm our minds, overcome our weaknesses, and overhear our praise throughout this day and week to his glory. Amen.